It was difficult. It was a difficult birth. Many resented the implications that our thoughts and feelings are as hardwired in our genetic code as the shape of our hands, rather heads, or the lengths of our fingers. And thus, presumably, as inescapable and unchangeable. Research in EP quickly became focused on differences between men and women shaped by their supposedly conflicting reproductive agendas. Critics heard overtones of racial determinism and the smug sexism that had just justified centuries of conquest, slavery, and discrimination. Although Wilson never argued that genetic inheritance alone creates psychological phenomena, merely that evolved tendencies of tendencies influence cognition and behavior. His moderate insights were quickly obscured by the immoderate disputes they sparked. Many social scientists at the time believed humans to be nearly completely cultural creatures, blank slates to be marked by society. But Wilson's perspective was highly attractive to other academics eager to introduce a more rigorous scientific methodology into fields they considered overly subjective and distorted by liberal political views and wishful thinking. Decades later, the two sides of the debate remain largely entrenched in their extreme positions. Human behavior as genetically determined versus human behavior as socially determined. As you might expect, the truth and the most valuable science being done in the field lies somewhere in between those two extremes. Today, self-proclaimed EP realists argue that it's ancient human nature that leads us to wage war on our neighbors, deceive our spouses, and abuse our stepchildren. They argue that rape is an unfortunate but largely successful reproductive strategy, and that marriage amounts to a no-win struggle of mutually assured disappointment. Romantic love is reduced to a chemical reaction, luring us into reproductive entanglements. Parental love keeps us from escaping. Theirs is an all-encompassing narrative, claiming to explain it all by reducing every human interaction to the reptilian pursuit of self-interest. Of course, there are many scientists working in evolutionary psychology, primatology, evolutionary biology, and other fields who don't sign on to the narrative we're critiquing in these pages, or whose paradigms overlap at some points but differ at others. We hope they'll forgive us if sometimes seems we oversimplify in order to more clearly illustrate the broad outlines of the various paradigms without getting lost in the weeds of subtle differences. Readers seeking more detailed information are encouraged to consult the endnotes. Evolutionary Psychology, EP's Standard Narrative, contains several 
clanging contradictions, but one of the most discordant involves female libido. Females, we're told again and again, are the choosy, reserved sex. Men spend their energies trying to impress women, flaunting expensive watches, packaging themselves in shiny new sports cars, clawing their way to positions of fame, status, and power, all to convince coy females to part with their closely guarded sexual favors. For women, the narrative holds that sex is about the security, emotional and material of the relationship, not the physical pleasure. Darwin agreed with this view. The coy, quote-unquote, female who requires to be courted is deeply embedded in his theory of sexual selection. If women were as libidinous as men, we're told, society itself would collapse. Lord Acton was only repeating what everyone knew in 1875 when he declared, quote, The majority of women, happily for them and for society, are not very much troubled with sexual feeling of any kind. Unquote. And yet, despite repeated assurances that women aren't particularly sexual creatures, in cultures around the world, men have gone to extraordinary lengths to control female libido. Female genital mutilation, head-to-toe chatters, medieval witch burnings, chastity belts, suffocating corsets, muttered insults about insatiable horrors, pathologizing, paternalistic medical diagnoses of nymphomania or hysteria, the debilitating scorn heaped on any female who chooses to be generous with her sexuality, all parts of a worldwide campaign to keep the supposedly low-key female libido under control. Why the electrified high-security razor wire fence to contain a kitty cat? Tiresias, a prominent figure in Greek mythology, had a unique perspective on male and female sexual pleasure. While still a young man, Tiresias came upon two snakes entwined in copulation. With his walking stick, he separated the amorous serpents and was suddenly transformed into a woman. Seven years later, the female Tiresias was walking through the forest when she again interrupted two snakes in a private moment. Placing her staff between them, she completed the cycle and was transformed back into a man. This unique breadth of experience led the first couple of the Greek pantheon, Zeus and Hera, to call upon Tiresias to resolve their long-running marital dispute. Who enjoys sex more, men or women? Zeus was sure that women did, but Hera would hear none of it. Tiresias replied that not only did females enjoy sex more than males, they enjoyed it nine times more. His response incensed Hera so much that she struck Tiresias blind, feeling responsible for having dragged poor Tiresias into this mess. Zeus tried to make amends by giving him the gift of prophecy. It was from the state of blinded vision that Tiresias saw the terrible destiny of Oedipus, who unknowingly killed his father and married his mother. 
Peter of Spain, author of the, one of the most widely read medical books of the 13th century, the Thesaurus Pauperum, was more diplomatic when confronted with the same question. His answer, published in Questiones Super Vitacidum, was that although it was true women experienced greater quantity of pleasure, men's sexual pleasure was of higher quality. Peter's book included ingredients for 34 aphrodisiacs, 56 prescriptions to enhance male libido, and advice for women wanting to avoid pregnancy. Perhaps it was his diplomacy, the birth control advice, or his open-mindedness that led to one of history's strange and tragic turns. In 1276, Peter of Spain was elected Pope John the 11th, but he died just nine months later when the ceiling of his library suspiciously collapsed on him as he slept. Why does any of this history matter? Why is it important that we correct widely held misconceptions about human sexual evolution? Well, ask yourself, what might change if everyone knew that women do, or at least can, in the right circumstances, enjoy sex as much as men, not to mention nine times more, or as Theresius exclaimed. What if Darwin was wrong about the sexuality of human female, led astray by, the se by his Victorian bias? What if Victoria's biggest secret was that men and women are both victims of false propaganda about our true sexual natures and the war between the sexes? still waged today, is a false flag operation a diversion from our common enemy. We are being misled and misinformed by an unfounded yet constantly repeated mantra about the naturalness of wedded bliss, female sexual reticence, and happily ever after sexual monogamy, a narrative pitting man against woman in a tragic tango of unrealistic expectations, snowballing frustration and crushing disappointment. Living under this tyranny of two, as author and media critique, writer critic, critic Laura Kipnis puts it, we carry the weight of, quote, modern love's central anxiety, namely, the expectation that romance and sexual attraction can last a lifetime of coupled togetherness despite much hard evidence to the contrary. Unquote.